Hello and welcome to Nerd World, where we bring you knowledge on all that's unfolding in the world around you. Today we hone in on business and tech. I'm Julia, your host, and I'm joined by Louis Bass, an experienced tech entrepreneur who's co-founded numerous companies, predominantly in the fintech space, ranging from Revix, a crypto investment service, to PolyPoly, which is revolutionizing the data economy, and of course, the Delta, a venture builder. So needless to say, Louis shares a lot of wisdom on the culture of startups, as well as the double-edged sword that is being a founder. He explains blockchain technology, the beauty in it, but difficulty of implementing it, and the challenges of innovating in that space. And we then go on to discuss data. Who owns your data? Who's making money off of it? And does the internet economy need a restructuring? Louis is so knowledgeable in all these fields, so it is a really interesting conversation and we hope you enjoy and learn a lot. Welcome, Louis. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm sure you have a very busy week as always, so we really appreciate your time. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Because, I mean, you're not involved in just one, you're involved in several businesses that you've co-founded. So I'm sure finding an hour out of your day isn't the easiest thing to do, but we really appreciate it and welcome. What is that like being a part of a different businesses that you are so invested in being a co-founder? Sure. Um, I mean, it's a, yeah. I mean, it, one thing that it is, is completely different every week. Uh, and I think that's just the virtue of the fact that, I guess it depends what role you're in the businesses at. And particularly young businesses, like I mean, you'll know yourself as we just chatted from a, an early stage business, the roles that you play are so vast, like the titles almost don't kind of make sense. But I mean, maybe I can just give a bit of context as to exactly like the situation currently or, or how things are set up. I mean, my background was kind of always in some form of startup. At university, I did engineering computer science and then kind of went from there into multiple different ventures ranging from like payments all the way through to internet of things. Most of them incredibly unsuccessful, almost all of them. But that means like statistically I'm in for some wins lately. So that's that's nice. So I would say the majority of my time is actually spent at the moment working on Delta, which is a venture builder. So indirectly through Delta, we'd probably be running or building at the moment is close to 50 companies. So it's a bit of a weird mix. Sometimes I'm involved in running Delta. Sometimes that means getting involved in running one of these companies, being involved or being on the board. So it's incredibly diverse. <laughs> but I really, yeah, I mean, I would say it's, I'm in a nice way trying to say that it's kind of messy and a mess, different every day and you never know what's coming. And when something, I guess it depends what the biggest fire is sometimes. So yeah, I mean, I can jump in a bit more in detail into some of it, but um, I kind of like that bit of mess, I guess. You mentioned the the Delta and you're a, you're a venture builder and you go and you help people. And I know that you guys don't term yourselves as, a, as an incubator. You are like a co-founder to these people who are trying to get their small businesses or their startups or whatever, you know, off the ground. And what is that like? What kind of role do you end up uh, as the Delta, what role do you play in these businesses long-term? Because I mean, if you were, if you're a co-founder as a business, you kind of remain with that business forever <laughs> until whichever direction yeah. it goes. So what, what does the Delta do in that capacity? Yeah, so it's actually like a very interesting question. Like every case is different, but just to clarify on the incubator point, like I have a massive thing against incubators. 
<laughs> for some reason. My experience with incubators is that incubators are like people who have never started a company helping other people that have never started a company start a company. So like everyone there is like, maybe it comes from the, my first experience in an incubator where I actually went to the incubator and it was the first year that the incubator was running. And then everyone sat down and they were like, okay, what do you want to learn? And we're like, hey, hold on, like you're supposed to, I was like, what were we supposed to learn? But anyway, so I'm done heading on incubators, but Delta is a very interesting mix, as you said now, like we're kind of a, a blend between a VC an agency of sorts. So we basically do all of the services well through, like all the way from, you know, your validation, your ideation, your venture strategy, fundraising strategy, all the way through UX, UI, product, product management, um, development, DevOps, commercialization, which ranges all the way from marketing strategy, campaign management, copywriting, and then actual business development. So basically Delta spans pretty much all the way from the beginning to the end. And every one of these areas is designed to prioritize venture success. So different to like a normal agency, like a normal agency or an agency in general, agencies you usually approach when you want to have one part of this whole thing done. And usually you'll contract with them at like some kind of scope. So they'll scope something and they'll deliver that. And that's your contractual relationship with them. But their delivery is actually not related to whether that company succeeds or not, which means that usually you're not aligned. So they end up doing stuff like charging a lot, all these different things, and it doesn't really promote venture success. So we basically take those lines out and we basically only work on ventures that we can go through all the way with and usually at an equity basis, because at the end of the day, that just, it almost removes so much effort because everyone's aligned. So a mix between a VC, because a lot of the time we're actually investing in some of these ventures or we're starting them ourselves, an agency, because we have a lot of the skill sets in-house, an accelerator, because at the end of the day, we are running or running or at least supporting these companies post when they've launched or post revenue. So we have the whole commercialization area that's actually meant to assist them to get connections. And like a lot of our clients, we end up using as weirdly like a network to sell into as well. And then I think the last one would kind of be, yeah, like a co-founder in the sense that we would get stuck into a venture at ideation stage and actually carry it all the way through. In all of the ventures we're in, we're a mix of those. So uh, kind of, as you mentioned now, like we'll, in some ventures, probably the oldest ventures we've been involved in is coming up on like two, two and a bit years now that we'd be in there doing predominantly all of the development work, a lot of the marketing work, a lot of the new product ideation work, some of the strategy, helping with fundraising. So basically it's kind of getting stuck in for a bit of the long haul. Obviously, the number of ventures that are older are less because I think we're only like two and a half years old, almost two and a half years old now. But I mean, we've managed, yeah, we've managed in two and a half, or just under two and a half years to get to like 80 something people now, which is like a little bit, a bit stressful sometimes. But, like. but it, must, it must help hugely being involved in all the different steps like you would in your own business you have a whole a bigger picture of the of the company and where it's going because i know whichever role you play in a business if you do have a greater understanding of what's going on in all the other areas it helps you yourself and it helps you to succeed in what you're trying to get across for that business as a copywriter for instance if you are working closely with the rest of the team you're going to get across their business in a way that resonates with them and with their consumer so much better because you have a deeper understanding yourself. Mm -hmm. It's a good point you make because I think I think in, in multiple ways, 
one obviously if you i guess it's it's line of sight of the process right one of the things that's the hardest about launching a company i call it in the wild is that is that you're figuring out what this process should look like while starting the company so you're dealing with uncertainty about value proposition about customer market fits about fundraising all these different things while you're figuring out what it means to do you know ux properly what it means to do all these different parts together development with what is a good way to do development what are the pros and cons of that one thing that delta has a a, a massive i guess increasing return from and is part of kind of the design and ip of delta is that we basically go through so many company launching all the way from ideating in like one area like predominantly in fintech all the way through to actually executing and marketing that so the feedback loops that we have internally about what makes sense from a development perspective what makes sense from you know what did work what last time what didn't work last time what what made sense from a value prop perspective we get to invest in these processes over and over again so when we have someone from marketing come and speak at like you know early stage value proposition definition by the time it gets to marketing they know exactly what's going on like they know exactly how they're going to market it and it's part of the validation process so we have a lot of uh, a lot of great i guess um i guess links internally i would say and that's one of the benefits of putting it all under one roof right yeah i mean every decision you then make in the early stages of your business you kind of have this vision in mind a lot more strongly you're not only going to face that when mm. you get to that point like you said with marketing it makes a huge difference and you yeah. can make early on decisions that are in line with that yeah no true i mean it's it's a weird thing like i mean these days with delta it's uh, like my experience before delta kind of starting ventures um and, and like some of the ones like example would be like something like a carry with netbank is the application of a lot of like lean methodology and things like that that you're doing figuring out you know how to put things together for one of the first times once you're a second or third or fourth time entrepreneur naturally then like you have a lot of these things kind of figured out right and that's why like investors are more, much more happy to invest in third fourth fifth time entrepreneurs just because they've been through this process so we leverage exactly that same benefit just with the business process really in delta I mean, it's yeah i mean we're not we're not there yet but i think we're getting now to the point where we're launching between 8 and 10 ventures a quarter uh ranging from fully owned by us to co-owned between us and like you know an old mutual or like on the european side you know we're probably doing two or three at the moment per quarter and that would be either kind of vc invested us funded or partner funded okay and what does it normally look like like will you have sort of like a young guy or young girl come up to you guys and say listen I, i i've got this idea and i don't know where to start i want to kind of partner up with you or how does it work yeah i mean it's it's an interesting question and i think it's almost like a bit of a i guess a a hot topic in the venture building space because i mean there are quite a few venture builders out there and each venture builder has a very particular way of going about it so the kind the kind that you're kind of alluding to there where you actually take entrepreneurs from the outside with an idea you're essentially supporting them and what that means is that like your venture builder or your it's more of a startup studio actually so you're assisting them to get better at launching their company and you're somehow benefiting either by taking a stake or you're investing in them or they're paying you services we're slightly different to that i mean we would work with founding teams that we think are really high quality but we we don't usually get into kind of 
the part of helping like startup founders who don't know where they're going. Um, and the reason being is it's just, it's just, we're not really geared to that. You know, that would be more on your kind of incubator side. Um, the way that we would work is, is we, we do a lot of internal ideation. So we'll be placed with essentially a business problem with a partner saying we want to enter the high net worth on demand insurance space. Uh, we think that, you know, makes sense. And the trends we're looking at are X, Y, Z. Like, how would we do that? And we would basically go and look at it and say, okay, cool. As a hundred percent Delta owned or a hundred percent client owned or co-owned between us and the client, we would internally use our product managers who eventually act as internal founders to basically ideate, iterate, and basically launch that company within three months. And the benefits of that, there are downsides of that. And the kind of the biggest part of the debate around downside, upside on that is if you've got an entrepreneur that's really passionate about a particular problem, like you can never, you can't rival the type of tenacity that they're willing to go through to solve those problems, right? They'll never take no for an answer. They'll eventually probably, in my opinion, do what's necessary to get the company where it needs to go. On the flip side, though, the downside of that, which is kind of like a founder-based business, you have the problem of that most of that like tenacity, usually founders end up attaching themselves to a problem and they don't really read the signals or the, like the writing on the wall. So they, can't even give up on it might, they can't give up on it. But like at the end of the day, it may not end up being something that you have the skills to launch. You've got the resources to launch. You've got, you know, you've understood product market fit correctly. Those things, like, it's a double-edged sword on that side. So sometimes it causes the success after eight years, or sometimes it just means that the person loses the first three years and then gives up. But that's kind of, it's neither here nor there. It's just different to what we do. On our side, we turn basically that early stage validation process, which usually um, is what a founder figures out the first time that they're becoming an entrepreneur, basically just by bashing their head against the wall a couple of times and reading the lean startup maybe. Right. They're like that tenacity gets you through it. For us, we take that that like market fit process and we basically turn it into math, it's basically a business process. Right. Because at the end of the day, it is the application of assumptions to figure out whether or not you're right over and over again. And there are ways in which you can make people better at that. The other thing that we do, I guess, is on the benefit side of that is <laughs> this is a bit of a controversial view, but like founders, in my experience, are not actually they're not smarter than anyone else. They don't become founders because you're like super smart. You actually become a founder of a company because you have a, a critical inability to forecast risk. Like that's it. Like you're like, this seems like an okay idea. Like, let's go do this. I reckon we'll get this right. If you're act, like most people who can adequately forecast risk actually go and work for McKinsey. They're like, but it, was, it doesn't make sense. Like I want to take a high paying job and go to a bank, do my articles or something like that. Um, and basically one of the other things that we're doing in that space, along with this business process is essentially saying, okay, cool. If it's a business process and you have this kind of certainty around your kind of job, and at the end of the day, you're doing great things, we can actually afford to get the people who would go to McKinsey to actually come and do that early stage validation, which at the end of the day, it's just maths and they're actually much better at it than normal founders in a while. And they've got all the tools they have. So basically we're much better with regards to getting market fit much quicker at a lower cost without the human capital. But on the downside of our model is you can never quite replace that, like that passion that someone who founded a company and is doing this because they love this problem or they love solving this problem or they're really passionate. 
you can never quite replace that. So you try, but but you can't really. So it's kind of like the analogy I use is like salmon in the wild and then like salmon that are farmed. Salmon that are farmed are like a little bit more like, you know, they're like a bit more susceptible to disease and like they don't really know what it's. And the wild salmon, most of them survive, but the ones that do are like, you know, really good quality. That's a super weird analogy, but like that's well, kind of I, how I get what you're saying. Work in my head that way sometimes, yeah. I get what you're saying. That yeah, that's that's super interesting, and I think you you're so right there. Where there's almost that double-edged sort of an entrepreneur who has this idea that they're so passionate about that they remain focused on and that can either spark creativity because they come up with solutions when there's a challenge, but it can also be when it isn't going to work, they just can't give up on it. But you almost want to channel that focus and that drive that they have, you know, it's their only focus at that time. Whereas when you're involved in a few different things like you, you have other areas that you can kind of, you can hone in on when one area isn't working. (laughs) Yeah, there's always an escape, right? So yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think there's a right or wrong, but I, but I do, I do know that there is an effective model in, in both ways. I mean, obviously the normal startup model has worked, but I've been there like with the normal startup, like before Delta, like, like my experience. Okay. Let's, let's, let's like zoom back a bit. Like I probably by the time I'd finished uni, at least tried for a company. And probably one of the biggest experiences I had in that was a company called PulseCheck, which is like an IOT company, (laughs) which was pretty current for me at the time. But basically I spent two and a half years at uni, like playing around with the startup idea. And it was a great idea. And if you asked anyone, they'd be like, wow, that's a great idea. But really, when you actually look at the signals, it wasn't there. And I, I learned that hard lesson of spending two years believing that this is a thing and you're like, you know, troubleshooting and tinkering. And I learned a lot. But in hindsight, man, I should have just done the first user test and been like, well, even if, even if it would work eventually, it's not exactly going to be like a walk in the park. It's like a hardware-based business. It's really hard to do, you know, like, do you have the capital to do this? A few times over, you learn these lessons to be like, it's not necessarily that the market fit is there or isn't there, but do I have the resources right now and the time to actually get this right? And I guess that comes down once again to why are you doing this? Like if you're doing it because you're hyper-passionate about a particular project. And the example I use there is there's this one... Um, there's one founder, Trisha Martinez. I don't know what company she was running, but I always like I was always so impressed because she it was in the whole blockchain hype space where everyone was doing ICOs and all of that, and they eventually did an ICO, and and they were trying to solve this problem in Uganda where they had um, like the monetary system and the banking system was so expensive and poorly run, and basically they had decided to make this token to like allow micro vendors in this market to sell different things and whatever and it seemed like a pretty hyped up thing at the time because they did this ico it was dialogue it was called dialogue or something like that anyway and then basically when i met her i realized that she'd been trying to solve this problem for like eight years like she'd lived in uganda and she'd really just fallen in love with solving this problem which is these villages that had like these women who would go work and like and she'd literally tried in so many different ways and like blockchain was just the most current technology trend that actually gave her a chance to solve the problem and eventually with the whole like death of icos and all of that eventually they closed down that business and she's still trying to solve that problem but like in a different way it was like the most admirable story but like other founders need to realize or other people in entrepreneurship need to like almost figure out what your own story is 
for me, like I enjoy the game and the, like, the puzzle of kind of, of putting these things together. Whereas I'm not really attached particularly to an individual problem that I'm so passionate about. Or in a nutshell, you could maybe say that I'm actually passionate about getting this problem right, which is why the venture builder is so intriguing to me, which is continuously figuring out how to get new ventures off the ground. To do that puzzle over and over again. It's like uh, constant puzzles. Building, yeah, building a machine to solve this puzzle better. It's the only way other than spending your time solving one at a time. I don't know. Anyway, once you start really looking at like, trying to psychoanalyze why entrepreneurs do what they do. <laughs> it gets really... Yeah, you can go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, like sometimes you look, you don't want to even look at it. You're just like, I don't, I don't want to actually psychoanalyze it. Maybe I'll stop doing it or maybe I'll figure out something that I'm like, man, do you? No, but that's interesting. And it's also interesting that you say that about your history as well with startups, because I think there's obviously so much to learn in, I don't want to say failures, but when something doesn't turn out how you expected, it's what builds up exactly why you can succeed in what you're doing now. And that's kind of the value that you bring at the Delta with all this experience that you have. You can stop someone else from making the same kind of like wrong turn as you, or you can help them foresee something. And it's, yeah, I mean, there's so much to learn along the way. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be persistent to that extent where you spend like eight years trying to solve the same problem, I mean, yeah, you surely eventually will. Well, I guess the jury's out, right? I guess we'll see. You know, some problems, hey, yeah, I guess it's one of those things where, like, what are you measuring as success, right? It's It's a bit of an intense one, to be honest. But um, you you mentioned blockchain and I actually really wanted to ask you a lot about that. I know it's one of your areas of expertise that you speak on and you have written some articles on and I kind of wanted you to explain it in so many different areas. I know in your specialties, FinTech, and um, could you kind of explain how that works in maybe the cryptocurrency space and then large, larger? Yeah, I mean, blockchain, blockchain is a very interesting... Uh area in general it's quite broad but i probably probably the first time i i I ran into blockchain was in 2016 when i was trying to build a corporate communication business um uh, yeah it was a lifetime ago we were (laughs) we called it ripple and um we basically our clients were like barlow world good best sab kind of thing and and we were trying to get the domain Ripple. And actually, there's a cryptocurrency now called Ripple, which eventually ended up running into. And I was like, like these guys, the Ripple guys, don't they know we're trying to revolutionize corporate communication? Like, I couldn't get the domain. So I was like, really big. I started looking at it. And it actually ended up, I didn't quite understand it at first because I was working really late nights trying to get like startups off the ground. And probably like three months later, I looked at it again. And I was like, man, it's actually it's like quite cool. <laughs> like, and then probably within six months from there, like the whole kind of ICO craze started happening. And a lot of people like flocked to blockchain, as, which at the end of the day is, a, is an incredibly interesting concept in what it is scientifically. And like having done computer science and out of my honors in computer science, I had like a major in cryptography. So like from a, from a nerdy perspective, like, like it's, really, it's really something quite beautiful in the different ways it gets implemented. I guess you wanted me to explain in a nutshell what a blockchain is, but I mean, a blockchain is in essence just a type of data storage mechanism or database that has particular characteristics. And some of those characteristics are that you can't, it's incredibly hard for one person to tamper with. Let's put it that way. That's it. 
And basically the reason it's incredibly hard to tamper with is that everyone has a copy and all of the changes are marked. And it's not that I can log in and like breach a bank database and go and change one number, which is usually how you would kind of change something in there. Nobody else would know because basically nobody else would have access to the database, right? So in a nutshell, that's it. And maybe I can use an example to just, this is the example that like kind of hit home for me. If you think about like tracking who owns what money everywhere, right? Banks are these weird like little castles they build with lots of expense to protect basically what is just one book with numbers, like your name and how much money you have. So they build all of the security over and over and over again on each bank and they regulate shit out of it to make sure that nobody's actually changing these numbers as opposed to just having one like global ledger that everyone has a copy of that no one can change without everyone agreeing, which is basically removes all of the cost of securing all of the bank core systems always. So it's almost like this completely different paradigm once you start realizing what those databases can be used for. So like I immediately fell in love with the concept a while ago and obviously having been in startups kind of immediately started trying to apply this to some, some or other venture everywhere. Um, it's incredibly hard to apply blockchain into a venture. I will tell you after having tried a couple of times because the incremental value of using a blockchain is so low <laughs> when solutions are already in markets. Like it is incredibly hard because basically what you're asking industry to do, or any company to do is like, and it, cause it's an infrastructure play like blockchain, like blockchains are useless when there's one party in a blockchain. Blockchains basically as the form, as I said, with the database, what they do is create trust between parties that don't immediately or implicitly trust each other. In that sense, you immediately couple the successfulness of a blockchain in any solution with multiple parties agreeing to work together on it, which in industry and in business is incredibly difficult. Like partnerships between more than two companies are like super rare. So hence why most of the industry bodies like the central banks and things were best positioned to actually innovate using blockchains, but they're so horrifically slow doing anything that they actually didn't move so most of the people trying to innovate in the blockchain space basically just like ran up against the wall innovating in the blockchain space i know other people are probably going to have different opinions on that but that's my opinion so some of the use cases that you could do which was obviously in the cryptocurrency investing space which is a business i co-founded called revix which essentially was a weird an interesting take on on etfs or kind of passive um, etfs with kind of a diversification strategy but instead in the blockchain space it ended up being more of like kind of a direct indexing than like the current financial systems etfs i don't know how much yeah i don't know how deep into finance we want to go here but anyway that that was basically not even using a blockchain all it was doing was having like a normal financial system tracking investments of assets on blockchain. So to really use blockchain in something is quite difficult. After that, we actually ended up working a lot in self-sovereign identity, which is if you take blockchain as kind of the infrastructure that has these different characteristics, you start getting these different use cases of blockchains. One big use case is obviously cryptocurrency or, or digital currency, which allows you to change like currencies to change hands without a central intermediary because everyone can trust each other. One of the other big ones is actually the kind of trust process behind identities. And that really fascinated me a lot from, a, from an identity perspective, because one of the big problems in the way the internet works or the way that, you know, I guess any business process works is that every single other entity is, is 
basically checking whether I am me all the time. So apps will check that, Standard Bank will check that, Home Affairs will check that. And basically everyone's making up their mind on that themselves. And this information is never really verifiable between these organizations, predominantly because apps can't walk to Standard Bank and say, hey, have you checked this guy's identity? And they're like, yeah, I know this is what it is. They can't do that based on Poppy and many different things. And they wouldn't want to do that. So it comes down to kind of how at the end of the day, can apps verify that I am me? And for me to use that same verification that they have done on me, giving it to Standard Bank to say, another institution that you trust said that this is me. So you should trust that. So it's like building trust layers on top of each other. So that whole area is quite like a, probably a more useful area based, based on blockchain than cryptocurrency, predominantly because cryptocurrency is just so unregulated that like you can almost not get anything right there. So the, the identity side actually spun into two or three different ventures, which are based kind of on the European side, um, ranging from basically just straight self-sovereign identity or identity tools to kind of decentralized data architectures that are built to kind of, you know, at the end of the day, one, protect your privacy and two, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's kind of esoteric, but to kind of set up a different way of the internet working, which is quite a, I won't go too deep into that because it'll actually take a bit long to explain, but a lot of these concepts of what that blockchain has in it, which is predominantly on, on cryptography, actually get used in pretty much all of the data oriented ventures that we do. And I guess in a nutshell to take away the technology that goes into blockchains, i.e. the public key cryptography, some of those core tenants actually at the end of the day are more useful than the blockchains in my opinion. Um, and we end up using them quite often. Okay, that really hit home how you explained it as everyone having a ledger in a sense and uh, everyone having a copy of that because you said it's very hard to tamper with and my initial understanding when I try to understand what a blockchain was in, in terms of payments and getting rid of that intermediary, immediately I thought, but how is that secure? And in a sense, it's more secure than the systems we used to. Is, is that fair in saying that? Fair in saying it. So blockchains, yes, you're 100% right. It is, it is more secure in the sense that everyone can stop holding on to this infrastructure so tightly. So banks can stop like caring so much about everything that happens all the way from the user through to the core ledger that they have and the banking system they have and the integrations into. I mean, think about it like this. BankServe is basically a company that, a massive company that's set up only to be an intermediary between the ledgers of banks. So like five or six banks all use this intermediary to figure out who, how much money each of them has. And the reserve bank pretty much has their own system to figure out which of these banks has the money. And they've got the like top level ledger of this is how much rand there is, right? All of that is like completely, all of those systems are basically kind of rendered slightly useless by a, a stable blockchain that anyone can run a node of. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things like price and things like that. The difficulty and the cost of running that would be so much lower and it's much more secure from a transaction perspective. The cost or the difficulty is doesn't actually lie in that. The difficulty lies in the fact that humans are very, very used to having these things looked after for them. So in the sense, there has to be something securing your identity at all times. So in blockchains, it's your private key, which you're supposed to hold now as a consumer. You're supposed to hold this private key and 
having that much trust instilled in us. Yeah. Yeah. Like you lose that and like your whole bank account's gone. It, it's not exactly something that is acceptable to the way that humans actually deal with it now. So you, you have a lot of companies working on ways to kind of improve the user experience while keeping that security or that decentralization. So that will, it's no doubt a problem that I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll solve over the next five to 10 years. I mean, we as in like the industry, not, not we as in us, because that's very complicated stuff. <laughs> and there's a lot of easier things to do out there than that. Yeah, yeah because I mean, if you have like a, a normal bank, then you have a problem. You say you've lost your key. Let's say you've forgotten your password. You just call the bank and you sort it out. But if you're talking mm-hmm. blockchains and like you've taken away that central kind of trusted entity, then who do you call? I mean, it's crazy because, I mean, actually, if you think about the reason why cryptocurrency hardly ever can be accepted in as like actual currency in a country is because of the fact that banking regulation is so, so, I would say, rigid with the, the rights it gives an individual who has given a deposit to one of these institutions. Basically, the institution is held to a level that says if, if this person wants this money, you must give it back to them. If this person, if this money is removed from your your holding without their express permission, it's your fault, which is why like if there's credit card fraud, it's the bank's fault. So they invest to decrease that. With a blockchain-based system or a cryptocurrency like that, the institution, i.e. the bank, cannot actually give those representations at all. Legally, like if they lost the key, it would be the bank's fault. And the bank would have to replace it. <laughs> so, which is one of the major hurdles of why this technology doesn't actually get accepted. It kind of just runs in the, in the gray area. And you mentioned that the, the banks are, you know, kind of the ones who are the developing the blockchain technology. But surely, am I being too reductive in saying that blockchains kind of like replace them in a sense? So why are they the ones building the blockchain technology? No, 100%. I don't, they don't miss, I don't know if I meant to say... They, don't, they, they do play around with it, but you're 100% right. So I actually meant to talk a while ago, which is basically to say that most banks and most financial service institutions launched all these investigations into blockchain. They were like, blockchain is a revolutionary technology, like we as Bank X or whatever are going to go and do research and figure out how we can use this thing. And pretty much every single one of the banks basically end up saying, oh, this, like, blockchains aren't used for much, like we can't use it, like all these things and 100% to your point is because like it works one layer lower if you had all banks at the end of the okay let's let's put it this way in 20 years time what would a bank be if the ledger was shared if they didn't have to look after that where the money is they'd essentially just be a brand like that you trust charging money to do transfers of money (laughs) yeah like literally like they would just be a brand Maybe, maybe someone who looks after your private key, that's it. So what the bank actually does will be so little relative to what they're doing now. And there's this other saying that's always like, um, other saying that always gets thrown around, which is that what banking is, um, banking is essential, banks are not. Like you need somewhere to store your money, but you don't necessarily need a bank to do it. So I don't actually know, like, I mean, I haven't, I mean, as a, from a, from just a pure business perspective and like, especially in the venture builder space, there are so many awesome ventures that you can put together that have absolutely nothing to do with really intense core technology like that. Like it's actually quite rare that certain solutions require something awesome like that. I mean, take a look at most of the challenger banks. 
like all of the challenger banks in Europe and like in the US, what they're actually, or even some of the unicorns that are like, you know, revolutionizing the insurance space and things like that. At the end of the day, they're not revolutionizing it with blockchain. They're revolutionizing it from a business model perspective, from a user value perspective. So what is, what is a large enough customer group want that they're not getting currently? And it comes back to that market fit. So we would, in our process now at the Venture Builder, we would hardly ever start a process looking at a technology and thinking, what can this technology do? We'd always start the process with the customer, figuring out what their problem is, what is not being served, and what can we actually do? Odds are 99.99% of those solutions that you come up with are so simple. You build them, like, it's like an app and a website, or it's not even an app, it's like a, like a progressive web app or something like that. So like that's really where the early stage ventures that we put together, like I found having been in the blockchain space for a while, it, it, you have it backwards if you're starting with blockchain, let's put it that way. Okay, you should kind of develop to that point and then try to incorporate it later on. Yeah, I mean, if it makes sense. If you can. If it, yeah. makes, if it makes sense. But most of the time, most of the time it doesn't. Unfortunately, I can say this because I've been in the blockchain space. I've like spoken i've like built a business there i've worked on it like three times nine out of ten times blockchain is not relevant for any business that you're building i mean if you're going to use it for fundraising like cool you're going to say this is where we're going and we're going to use blockchain but as long as you know yourself and you're not kidding yourself <laughs> that blockchain is is really like going to make it because it usually doesn't because I mean, you see it, obviously I'm interested in the kind of e-commerce and specifically grocery e-commerce sector mm -hmm. with the company that we have. So I looked at how Walmart is kind of like using it and they, as a, as a means of transparency. And I find that quite interesting. You also mentioned this idea of sovereignty and this idea of having your own key and this like trust being instilled in the individual. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting that Poly Poly or other company that's mm -hmm. like data and this idea of people kind of being more in control of the data around them and the data that is their own. Yeah, I mean, I can speak a bit on it. It's actually, it's walked a very interesting journey, that business. But, but like, just to your point about Walmart, I mean, Walmart, like big businesses that have really good, that have many providers and those providers often buy and sell from each other. You're in a great position to instill something that increases transparency and you may use blockchain to do that. Great example, one of one of a few different use cases, like in the supply chain logistics space. So you've got that, you've got Merce, you've got Amazon that's definitely, definitely being able to play in that kind of space. Um, you're gonna have like big platforms like WhatsApp being able to use it. Um, but alternatively, if you're running a normal startup, <laughs> you don't have that kind of scale. So, and like to the point of kind of data, so Poly Poly is an incredibly interesting incredibly interesting kind of vision like poly poly is actually merged out of a, a the startup that we co-founded with delta and they actually merged with poly poly under the name poly poly within the last few months but the mission or the vision there was actually like as you said to give sovereignty of people's data back and, and at a high level basically what what the issues were is is currently you're seeing these massive data monopolies so you're seeing basically like a google own so much data about you that eventually, just because of, by virtue of having that data, they continuously make more money off this data capital. And at the end of the day, that data, even though it's not necessarily owned by you by law, it should be because it was generated off you and they're making money off you. 
indirectly. It's like your digital footprint. And there are very, very few law. I mean, laws, if you think about it, GDPR. GDPR is like 12 years too late basically a legislative attempt to try and control where your data is and protect the rights of the consumer. We actually took the view to say that you actually could probably do this better with a technological solution that actually gave people the tools, one, and made it convenient, two, for them to take back control of their data. Lots of people have tried that, and we definitely went around the block and tried it a few times. But um, in a nutshell, like, you know, you start playing around with concepts like how can you actually still provide the same value to a user that they're getting from a Google or a Facebook, but they own the data? Because if you think about it, if Google and Facebook don't have that data, like how can they give you the level of, you know, search recommendations? How can they give you, you know, the level of like, I guess, friend requests or whatever? They wouldn't be able to be freely used and accessed anymore if they weren't getting that data from you because right now we're using kind of like these quite incredible platforms for free. So they have to be getting something out of you in exchange. Yeah, it's like we're the one poly poly kind of motto is that if you're not paying for it with the product, which is quite a well-known thing. But at the end of the day, like if you think about like poly poly particularly, uh, its mission at the end of the day is against a lot of these data monopolies in the sense that a lot of this data is being amassed and like taken advantage of and you're we're basically creating a bigger and bigger rut to actually get out of. So poly poly, which its name <laughs> essentially is like monopoly, but like a multi-poly, like a poly poly, like many poles to the system, which actually speaks to kind of democratizing where this data sits. The core premise of it is actually to generate new infrastructure that can allow people to build the same value proposition, but on a completely different economic base for the internet. And one of the main premises there is actually around edge computing. So let's take the example of like an insurance company now. So an insurance company right now to price my insurance, I give them a lot of data about me. So I say, these are all my things. And like, this is where I go and I'll give you telematics data and I'll give you access. Discovery is great at this. They'll basically download so much data about you that they can price their insurance correctly, right? The problem comes is when I've given all that data to Discovery, they are like so heavily regulated around what they can and can't do with that data. And I'm not saying Discovery does this, but a large number of times that data is then used for different things, for things that it shouldn't be. They're running models on it to figure out other things about it or to model different customer segments and all those things. And that data capital just keeps on growing. What Poly Poly actually does is actually says, why don't we flip that around? Why doesn't all my personal data stay with me in something called a Polypod, which Basically, at the end of the day, it's just like a very redundant database that's stored between my phone and like, I guess, a, like a cloud hub that is like my Google Drive, for instance, whatnot. And instead of actually the, the context being created out of this data on the server side, i.e. discovery, why doesn't discovery actually let me download a model onto my devices, have access to all my data, make up its mind what my price should be, and actually just return the salient data, i.e. this is my price, this is my risk, right? At the end of the day, that's a much more sustainable model for the internet, predominantly because discovery get what they want, which is to figure out what my insurance should be and give this basically sign an insurance contract with me, but they don't get all my data. And what that starts allowing you to do is actually start rewiring kind of the way the economic structure of the or model of the internet works. An example that could work with uh, advertising is something like this. 
Currently, what happens is Google owns so much information about me and everyone else. Every other brand has to go to Google or Facebook and say, listen, I want to market to customers who look like this, right? Google then basically gets developers to like embed certain advertising in their sites, all these different things. And basically when I land on their page, they notify Google or Google can basically know based on the cookies in my browser who I am and work out based on that data, what adverts they should serve me. Google is completely in the middle of this whole situation. They're like an intermediary between me and the brand, right? So in Poly Poly's universe or the Polyverse as they call it, what actually happens is I can land on this page and the website itself, right? Actually can have a, a fallback for Google advertising that if I have a Polypod, what happens is it asks me what adverts or am I allowed to understand like what you'd be interested in seeing, right? And at that point, it can run a model on my data and say, okay, cool, this person would want to see these kind of things. It actually then downloads an advert from what's called like a function hub, which is not Google, and basically serves that. It doesn't know what advert it's serving me at all. I see an advert, and basically the money then gets paid from the company whose advert it is to the website and to me. So I actually get paid out of that. So we basically cut Google out of that like loop. In essence, this is a great example of where most of the innovation in, in building that is actually just around the business model and around the value prop to different businesses and customers and why people will do that as opposed to actual blockchain technology, because there is actually no blockchain in the first version of that at all. It doesn't need to be there, uh, maybe for payment settling, but at the end of the day, it's not even kind of needed. So, yeah. It's very interesting to me because it almost makes me think like we shouldn't give our personal data away so freely, but it's kind of like the internet is this new, relatively new thing. And we just like so amazed by all this information we can get and all these things we can use. And we're not really thinking about it from a business perspective okay. and looking at ourselves as kind of just freely giving away all of this, like what could be almost like a commodity. Yeah. I, mean, I think, I think you spot on about that. It is, it is a commodity. Like it is once you start realizing it, the funny thing for me is like when I started getting into kind of the whole data sovereignty space and kind of these economic models, this is a great, um, there's a great Netflix documentary called the social dilemma. I don't know if you've watched it. But um, it's basically spot on what Poly Poly is trying to rewire because the problem with the models of what, what's happening, this commoditization of people in this whole industry leads to networks such as Facebook or Google who are basically just working out revenue. What they're doing is basically selling you to the highest bidder and they don't actually care what the highest bidder actually wants to change your opinion on because that's what they're doing they're selling changing people's opinion that's advertising and changing your opinion to buy my product is basically what pick and pay does like they're doing that over what changing your opinion to vote in a different direction is almost the same so basically they're selling the ability to change your opinion on something and by doing that what that means is that their optimization model from an analytics perspective is actually a hundred percent aligned to just making more money so that's when you start getting a lot of these things like fake news and really kind of, um, really kind of, I guess, outrageous and, and almost the more untrue, the more likely to get a click. So their optimization actually pervades a lot of rubbish and a lot of fake news and a lot of hurtful and probably like violence inciting things predominantly because it just makes more money. Mm -hmm. um, so unless we end up figuring out how to rewire 
some of this economic incentive of the internet, we're really going to end up with some like pretty heinous side effects over the next 10 to 20 years. So I'm quite certain that over, like since a lot of these elections and a lot of the fake news and a lot of the damage that's been proven through this, over the next 20 years, a lot of the regulation will change to actually push some of the responsibility onto these network tax. They'll actually start taxing a lot of the, the holding of data. So Google at the moment is taxed based on its revenues, but there's a lot of kind of ways around like actually starting to try and tax what basically is assets, i.e. in the form of data. Like if you're holding customer data, you should actually be taxed because it's something that you can actually use to create more revenue or it's something that you can create more value out of. So I think humanity always has a way of solving these things so that it takes about 10 years. <laughs> so like this, like Poly Poly is kind of aiming to be part of that. And I'm sure as people become more and more aware that data isn't something they should just be freely giving these huge corporations to make money off that people and business will kind of start shaping more in that way and people start becoming a bit more indignant. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's weird. It's like humans have spent probably the last, it depends on what you believe, but like millions of years understanding very innately the value of a physical possession that you can feel like to the point where people will pay 2000 rand a month to ADT to protect their goods and, and even more to protect your body. Um, there is very little shared understanding and I guess perspective of humans protecting your digital belongings. It's like incredibly new to humanity. And I think in one or two generations, the amount of value stored in actually your, your footprint of data actually going to be much higher than anything you'd hold, to be honest. And on that thought-provoking note, we conclude our conversation with Louis Bass. It was such a pleasure to have Louis as a guest. He's so knowledgeable on all the information he imparts on us and so honest and straightforward with his experience and opinions. So we hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Thank you so much.